Magnus Podcast, Episode 3, Science. got a great lecture today from Dr. Joe Zapata on the scientific revolution and its upshot for philosophy. Oftentimes, traditional thinkers can view the scientific revolution as something completely antithetical to Aristotelian philosophy or to theology. Dr. Joe Zapata will present uh, in this lecture, a, a, a counterclaim and possibly change your mind. It's, and it's, it's good. If you're here for sound bites, you're in the wrong place. This is a lecture that you're going to need to listen to thoughtfully and chew on. At the end of the lecture, we do get into a Q&A that you might find helpful. Dr. Joe Zapata is an associate professor uh, in the Great Books Department, the integral program at St. Mary's College. He's got an undergraduate degree from TAC, Thomas Aquinas College, and a doctorate from Notre Dame. He's published a ton on the relationship between scientific and philosophical thought, uh, especially regarding the scientific revolution, and more broadly on the history of philosophy. He's got great articles that have appeared in Intellectual History Review, History of Philosophy Quarterly, and the Journal of Inklings Studies. He currently lives in the East Bay, near where he teaches at St. Mary's. He's got uh, a wife and seven children. Uh, he's a great guy, and you're going to enjoy this lecture. If, if you have been enjoying the podcast so far, why not check out magnusinstitute.org? Everything we do on this podcast is a project of the Albertus Magnus Institute, a nonprofit dedicated to the revitalization of traditional education. You might hear just a bit of a hum because of the air conditioner in the room when we recorded this lecture, so apologies for that. Uh, nevertheless, a lecture worth hearing. Please enjoy Dr. Joe Zapata on the scientific revolution and its upshot for philosophy. Recording, so whatever you want. All right. I would like to plant a seed by means of this lecture. I'm going to discuss the scientific revolution, a period in intellectual and social history. And I want to suggest that common ways of thinking about it, and particularly about its philosophical implications, may be questionable or just outright wrong. So I'll start with the question, what, what is the scientific revolution? Um, the name itself is a relatively recent invention. Nonetheless, nothing marks the classic texts of this period more than their emphasis on their own novelty. These guys are saying, we're doing something new. Galileo's two new sciences, Bacon's new organon and new Atlantis, Kepler's new astronomy, Boyle's new experiments. Uh, I could go on and on. So it's highly appropriate to start with a couple of slogans from the self-styled innovators uh, of this period. In 1620, Francis Bacon, the Lord Chancellor of England, published his great work, The New Organon, or True Directions Concerning the Interpretation of Nature, in the prefatory material, he characterizes prior learning, that is sort of the, in, the, the inherited intellectual tradition that he found himself in. He characterized it as subject to serious and pervasive shortcomings. So he says, quote, 
There was but one course left, therefore, to try the whole thing anew upon a better plan and to commence a total reconstruction of sciences, arts, and all human knowledge raised upon the proper foundations, end quote. Well, that's pretty ambitious. Bacon makes this request of his audience. Quote, in behalf of the business which is in hand, I entreat men to believe that it is not an opinion to be held, but a work to be done, and to be well assured that I am laboring to lay the foundation not of any sect or doctrine, but of human utility and power. End quote. In 1637, René Descartes, a French polymath and a former soldier, published his celebrated Discourse on the Method for Conducting One's Reason Well and for Seeking the Truth in the Sciences. In this quasi-autobiographical work, he begins by describing his own education and the strengths, but chiefly the weaknesses, of the disciplines which he had studied. Quote, I delighted most of all in mathematics because of the certainty and the evidence of its reasonings, but I did not yet notice its true use, and thinking that it was of service merely to the mechanical arts, I was astonished by the fact that no one had built anything more noble upon its foundations, given that they were so solid and firm. Then as for the other sciences, I judged that, insofar as they borrowed their principles from philosophy, one could not have built anything solid upon such unstable foundations. End quote. And we can see already from these passages that there's a big agenda being set forward um, in Descartes. It has to do with mathematics and putting it to a more universal use. It has to do with revolutionizing the received philosophy. And uh, that last point is common to Bacon as well. Going on to Descartes' famous meditations on first philosophy from 1641, he starts his first meditation Several years have now passed since I first realized how numerous were the false opinions that in my youth I had taken to be true, and thus how doubtful were all those things that I had subsequently built upon them, and thus I realized that once in my life I had to raise everything to the ground and begin again from the original foundations if I wanted to establish anything firm and lasting in the sciences." End quote. So both these thinkers um, who are both sometimes given the title of father of, of modern science. Uh, first thing to note about these passages is that both condemn the established and inherited learning of their time as essentially and systemically flawed. And so they announce the need for a fresh start, for new foundations, for all knowledge. Out with the old and in with the new. Descartes takes mathematics as a pattern and a resource. Why is it a pattern? Well, he thinks that its certainty and its evidence really ought to be imitated by all the underachieving disciplines, which, in his mind, are thoroughly corrupted by bad philosophy. And he sees it as a resource because he wants to build on mathematical foundations a structure that covers more than the standard scope of mathematics at that time. He wants to apply mathematics to the world in a broader way, a universal way. Now, you may have remembered, you may remember at this point, that is, that Descartes said something about the mechanical arts. He meant basically the theory of machines, the inclined plane, the law of the lever, that kind of thing. Um, but of course, as he went on in his intellectual career, he wanted to expand mathematics beyond that domain so that it 
established the method for the right way to think about nature and also defined the very subject matter of the study of nature. He later wrote, My physics is nothing but geometry. So here's another central idea among the self-conscious innovators in this period, in the 17th century. Exploiting or expanding mechanics into a general natural philosophy. And so we see Isaac Newton in the preface to his famous Principia Mathematica, the mathematical principles of natural philosophy. He casts his efforts as rational mechanics, and he defines that as, quote, the science of motions resulting from any forces whatsoever and of the forces required to produce any motions accurately proposed and demonstrated, end quote. Now, even in thinkers less fully mathematical than Newton, the machine as an image of nature was a frequent trope in this period. In fact, the image of the machine in many cases motivated or justified natural investigations that were not mathematical at all. It could simply mean that the investigator was trying to explain something in terms of the action of the material parts of the, the, the object in question. So allow me to make at this point some sweeping generalizations um, with the proviso that these are always a bit oversimplified. The stated agenda of the innovators of in what we now call the scientific revolution involved broadly the following grand themes. First, a commitment to empirical evidence and or the independent judgment of reason as opposed to reliance on the authority of previous great authors. And here, previous great authors generally meant Aristotle. He's the bad guy. Uh, he's the sort of boogeyman at the back of the dreams of all these guys. Second, a vision of nature as amenable to mathematical study. Now, Aristotle had said that mathematics abstracts away from some of the basic constitutive truths about natural objects. Galileo, on the other hand, famously says, the book of nature is written in mathematical characters. And you can't read the book if you don't speak the language. Third, an adherence to a mechanical conception of nature. Now, it's tricky to pin down exactly what this means. But I think one common thread of it is that a mechanical explanation recognizes no intrinsic purposes in the thing you are talking about. For Aristotle, all natural things are purpose-laden. They exhibit goal-directed behavior. Even simple things, inorganic objects, we would call them now, have purposes. They just have simple purposes sort of built into their very being. But a mechanism, on the other hand, a mechanism's action is explained only in terms of some simple principles of motion and the arrangement of the mechanism's parts. So this trope, I think, is also anti-Aristotelian. Um, even though in other ways it's hard to pin down the common thread among different authors who talk about mechanical explanations. They're all being anti-Aristotelian, more or less. Fourth, last but not least, and this is in many but not all cases, there's an emphasis on the practical benefits of the proper study of nature. Um, and Bacon is the famous one here um, to make us... Uh, to establish human power over nature. Um, so action and technology and productivity is uh, part of the agenda as well. Okay, 
I'm a little exhausted by those sweeping generalizations, so to relieve my guilty conscience, I'll turn to a bit of a historical overview. The scientific revolution as a historical period is centered on the 17th century, so the 1600s, but is often said to have begun midway through the previous century in 1543. Now, what's special about that year? Well, in that year, 1543, a Polish clergyman, Nicholas Copernicus, published a book by the title of the On the Revolutions of the Heavenly Spheres. This book and its cogent criticisms of a geocentric and geostatic cosmos and its bold defense of a heliocentric geokinetic world system was famously defended by Galileo. And the Copernican model of the solar system also made possible the unifying of physics for the earthly terrestrial realm and the heavenly celestial realm, um, which in our common experience and in the philosophy of previous centuries had been thought of as two very separate domains that operated in very different ways. So you wouldn't have one, uh, one sort of account for the way celestial objects behave, the way they exist how they're constituted, their sorts of motion. You wouldn't have the same account for that and for objects moving about on the surface of the earth. But of course, that's the ambition of people like Descartes and most successfully Newton. So this would be enough to make 1543 a natural, if still somewhat arbitrary, birthday for, uh, for the baby in question, the scientific revolution. But that's not all. History also throws in, as a bonus, another groundbreaking work, also published in 1543. This is On the Fabric of the Human Body by the Flemish anatomist Andreas Vesalius, a dissector and illustrator extraordinaire. Vesalius helps to establish a very high standard of anatomical study, uh, a standard upheld especially at the Great School of Medicine at the University of Padua, where generations of great anatomists were trained. One of them was William Harvey, who is, of course, celebrated for discovering the circulation of the blood. And his famous book on that topic was published in 1637. So much for the so-called starting date of this period. What else went on during the period that justifies the rather illustrious, even the rather pretentious title, The Scientific Revolution, as if it's the definitive one or the only one of its kind? Well, too much went on to list here, obviously, but I'll hit some highlights. The great uni European universities by this time had been influenced by Renaissance humanism, and so there was an, a re-emphasis on classical learning and culture, on literature, on the study of texts in their original languages, and on the glories and possibilities of human nature. And the idea that particularly that gentlemen, not just professional scholars, ought to be broadly educated, was a gift of the Renaissance to the period in question. And so one thing that happens in the scientific revolution is the development of uh, research centers, if you will, or learned societies that were independent of the university system, as well as networks of correspondence between natural philosophers, mathematicians, early modern polynerds of every stripe. So the Royal Society in London is one very important example. It started in 1660 as sort of an experimental research club. And much that is distinctive of modern scientific practice 
can be seen in the Royal Society and its continental cousins. Things like controlled experiment, emphasis on careful recording of facts, paying attention and writing down the experimental conditions, uh, rep, you know, being able to replicate empirical results. Uh, those things go back to these organizations. Now, turning to the intellectual developments themselves, sort of the content of the scientific revolution, a big part of what is called the scientific revolution has to do with astronomy and physics. Copernicus and his most effective proponent, Galileo, gave strong arguments in favor of heliocentrism um, in astronomical terms. It makes more sense in terms of the astronomical theory to do it this way than that way, so they said. But when it came to physical arguments, sort of the causes of things and why things move the way they do or don't move when they don't move, Copernicus himself could only point out the weaknesses of the arguments on the other side. So a whole host of arguments um, up to the point when Copernicus is writing about why the Earth can't be moving or isn't moving, a whole host of arguments traded on the basic division of phenomena into terrestrial and celestial, terrestrial, earthly, celestial, heavenly. The stuff that you see up in the sky just seems to be different than the stuff we see down on the Earth. Um, there's much more predictability and uh, almost eternity in the celestial motions as opposed to the apparently chaotic uh, difficult to predict uh, short-term nature of motions on the earth. Copernicus pointed out weaknesses in this view, um, but he didn't really have a whole physical account to replace the, the received philosophy at the time. So he had no developed account of how the earth could be flying through the heavens at unbelievable speeds while rotating without our being aware of it. Um, he could just point out the weaknesses in the opposing view. Now, Galileo made some progress in that direction, as did Johannes Kepler, but only very rudimentary progress in terms of physics. However, in a related but distinct set of developments, the mathematical study of moving things on the Earth, bodies in motion on or near the surface of the Earth, was proceeding apace in the hands of Galileo, Descartes, Christian Huygens, and others. And the crowning glory of this sort of thread of the scientific revolution was Isaac Newton's Principia Mathematica, which brilliantly succeeded in unifying celestial and terrestrial mechanics in one system of mathematical laws and theorems. So we can see, looking at these two sort of paradigms, Newton's mathematical unification of physics on the one hand, and William Harvey's discovery of the circulation on the other, we can see the two poles or the two faces of the scientific revolution. On the one hand, there seems to be brilliant and daring mathematical theorizing, going way out ahead of what mere empiricism would countenance. On the other hand, there's the sort of anti-theoretical or cautious, meticulous collection of data um, careful experimentation, not getting ahead of yourself. Hypotheses are advanced provisionally. They're open to revision or rejection according to the results. Now, depending on what a historian emphasizes, the scientific revolution can be portrayed as the triumph of evidence and data and experiment over, over wishful and anthropomorphic thinking, over metaphysics, over grand system building of all kinds. On the other hand, 
This period can be portrayed as the ultimate conceptual victory, a revolution in how people thought about the world, the triumph of bold re-theorizing, um, and the victory of mathematical systematization over common sense experience. So, there are a couple different ways, well, there are many different ways you can think about the scientific rev revolution and its sort of moral for uh, how we should think about the world in the big picture. I want to dwell for a second on what difference the scientific revolution makes to philosophy. Now, consider this scenario. Say you want to know whether matter is atomic, whether at the smallest, most basic level it's continuous or discrete. Suppose you're curious about that. Whom would you consult? I'm willing to bet most would head for the physics department or maybe the chemistry department or if you're really out there, maybe the math department. But philosophers, why would they be the ones to answer that question? How would they know the answer? But in the 17th century, the idea of atomism was something disputed through philosophical argument, much more than it was something that was investigated empirically. Here's another example. Is there such a thing as really empty space, space with no matter or energy or anything in it? If you wanted an answer to that, would you ask a physicist or a philosopher? That was a live and somewhat contentious question in the 17th century, and in some ways it still is today. Just a couple of years ago, there was a spat in journals and commentary pieces and uh, intellectual uh, media, basically, about a physicist's book, which claims to resolve the age-old philosophical question, why is there something rather than nothing? Now, many philosophers, including some trained in physics, objected that the author had not resolved that question, but had simply made a very elementary philosophical error and had no clue that he wasn't doing what he claimed to be doing. The physicist responded, basically, that philosophers are useless nincompoops, and they don't get to police how real scientists should interpret big questions. They don't get to decide what counts as a real answer to those questions. So these examples are meant to show, though, though provisionally, that there is to this day a vexed relationship between philosophizing and the modern sciences of the natural world. And this difficult relationship tracks back to the scientific revolution. I think one stance on that relationship, the philosophy to science relationship, on what it is and what it should be, is logically entangled with what one thinks happened in the scientific revolution. Now, I'm going to shift gears a little bit away from the disciplinary relationship between science and philosophy to talk about the philosophical moral of the scientific revolution, if there is one. Now, many have taken that moral to be basically this. Aristotle and our common sense ways of thinking about the world, which Aristotle took too much for granted, was shown to be wrong, and that's why overthrowing Aristotle's intellectual authority, why deposing him from being the kind of godfather of the university curriculum, etc., etc., that's why tossing Aristotle, Aristotle aside led to this whole flowering of the enterprise that we now know and love as modern science. On this view, the moral is basically this. Nature is not purposive, as Aristotle said it was. It's mechanical. Our common experience of the world isn't sufficient to determine the principles on which nature operates. You need specialized inquiry. Natural language, human speech, isn't congruent with nature. Mathematics is. So you toss out Aristotle and good things happen. That's a, a sort of boiled down but very common way of thinking about the philosophical moral of the scientific revolution.
I want to propose an alternative way of thinking about this, and I'm going to um, start first with a point that the uh, the historian and philosopher of science Alan Chalmers has made. He says, the scientific revolution is properly understood not as the success of a new mechanized worldview, but as the emergence of a scientific practice that developed ways to, to propose causal explanations that closely fit the experimental data. So to put that a little more simply, the interplay between reasoning and experimental observation is the real legacy of the scientific revolution not a broad shift in the fundamental picture of the world from Aristotelian to not Aristotelian or something like that. Now, I think this is basically right. Um, so let's, let's hear from, from another contemporary philosopher. This time it's the Aristotelian philosopher E.J. Lowe. He points out a different way of thinking about common sense, science, and philosophy. Here's Lowe, quote, Common sense cannot intelligibly be abandoned completely, but neither can it be defended from every charge of incoherence. The task of the philosopher is to strike the right balance between its rejection and its revision. Russell, that's the British philosopher Bertrand Russell, once said that common sense leads to science— and science shows common sense to be false. But that is too stark a judgment. Certainly many common sense notions are shown to be false by modern science, but a physics which is so disconnected with common sense as to be nothing more than an abstract mathematical formalism can at best be of only instrumental value. It cannot help us to understand the fundamental nature of reality, which is the aspiration of metaphysics. In pursuing its task, metaphysics must take notice of developments in theoretical science, but should not be in servitude to them. In my view, metaphysics really is, as Aristotle said, first philosophy, and as such an implicit prerequisite for any more specific form of intellectual inquiry, whatever. Now, what would we expect to see if Lowe is right, if that is the moral of the that we should take from our intellectual tradition, and specifically from the scientific revolution, is not that science has displaced any philosophizing based on common sense, but rather metaphysics still exists as the first philosophy and still really is first, but it needs to take into account and interpret the developments in modern science. What would we expect to see if Lowe is right? Well, one thing we might see is that elements that are sort of harmonious and integrated in Aristotle's philosophy might be areas where you get intellectual problems in the current philosophical worldview. And one of those areas is the relationship between math mathematics and reality in physics. As I pointed out earlier, Aristotle thought that mathematics was abstracted away from the, the basic features of natural things that help us understand what they are at the deepest level. Um, so fundamentally, the philosophy of nature is not mathematical, though many that leaves open the possibility that you can learn many things uh, or interpret many things about the natural world through mathematics. Now, I'm going to turn to another quotation from a contemporary to show that, in fact, there is still 
an intellectual problem with the relationship between mathematics that we use to study nature now and what nature, what natural things really are. As a little preface to this quotation, one of the hallmarks of the scientific revolution was the, the bringing together of algebra and arithmetic on one hand with geometry on the other hand, so that physical, spatial objects could be studied by algebraic methods. But here in this quotation, we see a contemporary philosopher of physics worrying about the upshot of this, this bringing together of the arithmetic with the geometrical. This is Tim Maudlin. He is not an Aristotelian, so I'm not, I'm not cherry picking this from somebody on my side philosophically. Um, but he's a thoughtful philosopher who's extremely well trained in physics. Here's what he has to say about that development, that hallmark uh, of the scientific revolution. Quote, the advantage of using such arithmetical representations of geometrical objects is that it allows us to use algebraic methods to solve geometrical problems. By means of a coordinate system, problems of geometry can be converted into questions of arithmetic and arithmetical methods can be used to solve them. The mathematical power of this translation of geometry into, arithme into arithmetic cannot be overstated. But with it comes an accompanying danger the distinction between the object of study and a representation of that object can become obscured. This is not an idle worry. Even Einstein had a hard time distinguishing those features of coordinates that carry some geometrical or physical significance from those that don't. End quote. I think that should give us pause when thinking about this piece of, of the heritage of the scientific revolution. Um, something about one of the most successful aspects of it, the bringing together of arithmetic and geometry and the, the subsequent uh, flowering of mathematical physics, uh, raises basic difficulties about how to tell whether some feature is a feature of the mathematical tool or a, physical, a feature of the physical reality. Now suppose, as I think is very plausible, that the success of modern science and, and the revolution through which it emerged has something to do with a fruitful working relationship between theory and observation, not mere unguided blind recording of facts, nor theoretical deduction or mathematical theorizing alone, but rather empirical inquiry that's theoretically guided. Now, this is basically Alan Chalmers' thesis about what was really going on in the scientific revolution. And let's suppose that that's correct for a second. We might conclude then that the philosophical moves that made scientific progress possible did so in some cases by imposing or allowing a productive discipline in the delimiting of the domain of inquiry. Okay, that's a little bit too, too much of a mouthful. That the philosophical moves that made scientific progress possible did so not so much because those philosophical moves were correct in themselves, but because they allowed for a productive relationship in delimiting the domain of inquiry. And that allowed them in turn, to bring theorizing into fruitful relationship with empirical investigations. 
that's still probably not clear enough. I think what I'm trying to get at is that there's a distinction between the propaganda of the scientific revolution, to put it sort of polemically, um, the philosophical agenda that's announced uh, and which is very anti-Aristotelian. So that's on one hand, but that's different from the actual features of the scientific revolution that made it successful. And the seed that I want to have planted by this point is the thought that, hey, maybe those aren't the same thing. Maybe the philosophical worldview, if you will, of the fathers of modern science, the founders of the scientific revolution, maybe those were more about more useful propaganda given the social, historical, intellectual context that allowed them to get a new kind of inquiry rolling. So is it possible then that the scientific revolution sort of put to one side, bracketed rather than eliminated, the main elements of an Aristotelian view of the world? I believe it did. Now, it takes a lot of philosophical argument and a lot of interpretation of contemporary science to substantiate that claim. But a first step is this, to recognize that the scientific revolution was both the beginning of a tremendously successful set of research practices and approaches, and also was the site of a lot of big-picture philosophical propaganda, especially against Aristotle. And the blending of those two things may have been institutionally necessary for the success of the scientific revolution as a historical process, but that doesn't mean that we have to believe the propaganda. A first step, in other words, is to contemplate the possibility that much of what we think we know about this period in human intellectual history is framed by the propaganda of the agents themselves. Okay, so uh, very good. I, I do have a few few questions. Number one, um, I, I found it interesting that that uh, Bacon's explicit uh, aim was to uh, sort of replace uh, Aristotle's notion of telos with uh, the pursuit of human power and the accomplishment of human power. And I couldn't help but notice that that sounds a whole lot like uh, Machiavelli. Uh, do you see any, uh, or, or was there any uh, direct influence that we're aware of between, uh, you know, Machiavelli and and then this scientific revolution? Because mm-hmm. Machiavelli's not really writing as a scientist, right? But right. He, but he right. is he is trying to overthrow a natural talos in place of something that is accomplishable, namely. Mm-hmm. Uh, power. Yeah, I think I think people do draw connections there. I'm not aware of any any sort of direct connection between the two in terms of, you know, one was inspired by the other. Um, but certainly you can see a sort of kinship in the agenda. Uh, and there's a famous remark attributed to William Harvey about about uh, his contemporary Francis Bacon. He said he philosophizes like a Lord Chancellor, like like a politician, basically. <laughs> so there you have kind yeah. of the connection being drawn even by a contemporary. Um, and Bacon's very very clear that he he wants to be setting in motion uh, a mobilizing of human resources, mm-hmm. not just uh, the consideration of a different set of ideas. 
So it's, uh, it is sort of a, a program of social organization of science that he's, he's proposing. That's very clear in his sort of utopian, uh, philosophical fiction, the new Atlantis, where he describes a kind of ideal society. It's an Island out in the ocean. Um, it's very Protestant because literally only the Bible was given by direct inspiration down from heaven in a shaft of light. So literally sola scriptura. Um, but I mean, more to the point, it's, it features uh, a society, a society where all the resources of that society are mobilized around scientific research. Um, and they're instead of sort of Plato's philosopher Kings, you have these kind of high priests of science who are sort of at the helm or, or driving the advancement of this civilization. So there is, I think, a connection um, in two directions. Bacon saw this as a sort of not just a, a new set of ideas or as the overthrowing of Aristotelian ideas, but of mobilizing humanity in a different way. And so that implies sort of social organization and administration. Um, then on the other side, and I think this is more where, where the way you were suggesting it is, uh, is that you have a common uh, move away from the notion of telos to to what's a, what's accomplishable, and what can be what can be done um, by human power. Uh, so yeah, I think there is at least a kinship there. Do you think the the breakdown of philosophy is rooted in uh, a breakdown of science, or you know we could argue like that maybe it's preceded by a, a political. Uh, breakdown, but even before the political breakdown of Machiavelli, you have epistemological breakdowns, William of Ockham, uh, certain Franciscans, you know, responding to Aquinas and inverting uh, volition over intellect. So right there you have this sort of seed of uh, what we want to be replacing what is, which is the hallmark of modern science at its worst. So where does it begin? Uh, I mean, you, I mean, you could tr- trace it all the way back to the fall of Adam, I suppose. Right. But right. Uh, in the history of philosophy, mm-hmm. uh, where would you say is is the most clear germ of the scientific revolution? That's a great question. Um, I, I think it's it, you went exactly in the right direction to relate it to the fall of Adam. That in a way. Uh, in a way, it's sort of the whole story of humanity, um, and I think in some ways it, it's in some ways it's a misconceived project to go looking for the beginning at a certain moment. Uh, seems to me, intellectual history is too complicated to find just one beginning for something so manifold as the kind of developments we're talking about. But I think you can. I think people with good reason focus on certain thinkers and certain eras. I think that, you know, I don't think it's all just a big hodgepodge um, with no structure. Uh, there really were moments and, and works and thinkers who, who really drove things in a certain direction. Um, I think you can distinguish the, however, the, the, the kind of move to uh, apply sort of the division of labor and sort of collective, uh, human capital on uh, on scientific inquiry, which is sort of Bacon's big project that he wants to set in motion. You can distinguish kind of the practical um, mobilizing of humanity for technical aims. Distinguish that from from the what I see as more related to the the kind of 
fall of the angels and the fall of man, the, the, mm-hmm. the turn away, the, the refusal to allow for uh, the perspective on the divine. Um, some see that in Machiavelli. Um, I'm not sure if that's there in Bacon explicitly, though you might argue that it's there in 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 some in germ or something like that. Um, you can certainly see that by the time you get to, to the Enlightenment and uh, thinkers sort of on the other side of the scientific revolution, if you will, um, historically sort of taking stock of it and trying to lay down principles for human knowledge uh, and the human good and human societies that uh, in some cases are, are sort of conceived as explicitly um, rejecting any any kind of demand that might be made upon human beings by their creator um, and accepting only sort of the human horizon, if you will, uh, uh, as the grounding for, for all those things. Um, so it seems to me there is a sort of important and intelligible relationship between these things that the, these features of the scientific revolution, particularly the connection to, to sort of human power over nature, technical advance, um, as if not the, the, the sole goal or the principal goal, at least a sort of hallmark of what's really working. Um, there's a connection between that, I think, and that sort of enlightenment period philosophizing about human beings and just sort of, I'm not going to think about God, I'm going to hold, or I'm going to explicitly reject the transcendent, the revealed, um, as something from outside and therefore which is inauthentic or heteronymous or problematic in some way for the, for the proper formulation of human life, human society, human knowledge. Um, I think it's, it's, it's sort of a common misconception about Bacon in particular that he thought it was all just about power. Um, I think he's a little more nuanced than that, and he thinks that it's a sort of sign that you're getting something right about nature if it allows you to manipulate things. Um, so technical success is a sort of mark of getting at the truth. Mm. Um, so it's not it's not a reduction or a rejection of truth as good in itself. Um, but he does have that emphasis on power and the technical, and Descartes does as well, though it's not as obvious in his major texts. Right. So, yeah, I mean, you've done a, a really helpful job, I think, of of parsing the baby from the bathwater here. And, of course, the scientific revolution isn't all bad, right? We couldn't record this great yeah, podcast without it. Um, but I'm wondering if, if you – because, you know, the destruction of metaphysics and the elimination of Talos is, is like a big deal that has had tremendous negative consequences that far mm-hmm. surpassed many could argue the positive consequences such as, you know, modern medicine and podcast recording. Uh, so I'm wondering though, if, if you see empirical science that is, that is the, the fruit of the scientific revolution in itself, finding its way back to Aristotle and, and by example, uh, I'm not a quantum physicist at all, uh, but but it's like, well, what's what is a, an atom made out of? Uh, quarks. What are quarks made out of? Energy and intelligence. So it's like at its apex, empirical science seems to be 
poking back without knowing it toward something like metaphysics, something like, uh, you know, we could, we could have an agreement here with, with St. Thomas, with Aristotle. So do you see modern science at its best finding its way back toward a teleological, a teleological, is that a word? Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. rooted, uh, science. Yeah, I think there are encouraging signs in that direction, though. I mean, I'm, I'm not a, a scientist myself, but um, sort of at, at one remove from that, it seems to me that there are some encouraging signs in that direction. That, that um, it seems to me there's there's more open mindedness towards that possibility amongst people who think who still want to think in a big picture way about what a living being is, um, you know, what a natural object is. I think in in contemporary academic philosophy, there is a kind of renaissance of Aristotelian, broadly Aristotelian thinking, and not just in the ethical realm, but in in metaphysics. Um, and I think in in certainly, I think in physics, there are, there are many uh, sort of philosophically attuned theoretical physicists who have said very Aristotelian sounding things about where they see things going. Um, in terms of the notion of potency, uh, in terms of uh, having a richer and more multivalent notion of causality, like Aristotle does um, with the famous four causes. Um, I think that the tricky one there, and I didn't talk much about this because it doesn't fall in the same historical period, but the tricky one there is, is of course, Darwinism and an evolutionary theory. Um, but even there, I think you can see... Um, you can see theorists of of the organism who uh, I think are. It seems to me there's at least discussions about what might we be leaving out if we think about everything in a kind of Richard Dawkins version of Darwin, where uh, or of evolutionary theory, where everything is just about adaptations. Um, and so I think there's been more. I mean, the whole the whole sort of subfield is called Evo Devo. Um, uh, evolutionary, to, um, sorry, I'm losing, I'm losing the, the phrase, but uh, bringing together evolutionary theory with study of of the development of the organism, so embryology, which is kind of a black box in classical Darwinian theory. Um, seems to me there's more openness to attending to the organism itself as something that's really possible to understand as not just a list of of adaptations, right and um, for another example, the, the sort of expectation of the results of the, the recently acquired ability to, to sort of decode whole genomes, um, the idea that this would give you a sort of br- blueprint for the whole organism turns out to be really, really not true, um, and that the whole thing has to be understood uh, not as a taking a part of the organism into a a sort of mechanical transcription of its isolated traits. Um, But even to understand what a gene is and what it does, you have to understand them as operating within an organism um, that has its own structure, its own form. Um, So it seems to me there's, there's encouraging uh, openness to thinking about, for example, the organism as not just reduced to the genome reduced to a list of adaptations and so on. Now it's still a lot of a long distance from there to getting biologists 
broadly speaking, to talk in talk openly about you know teleology as sort of cons- constitutive of of an organism. Um, but I think I think there has been you know there has been some opening up in that area. I would say you brought up Dawkins, and it's very interesting that. Even questions today that are discussed commonly about science almost seem to, I mean, really always end up uh, in a discussion of religion, of worship. And really, there, there is this big latent question with, with modern science, and especially as you're talking about, you know, um, genetic coding. And we, we just heard that I think China made the first gene edited human. Uh, and it's this war, right, between, uh, as you put it, mechanism over talos. And there's sort of two camps and, and the view of the human person really is going gonna, is gonna to boil down to one of those. Does the human person have a divine end or is the human person reducible to machine or beast? And, you know, in many ways uh, for, you know, 1500 years or so, uh, one side got to make their case and, you know, now for the last 500 years, the other side has made its case. There's probably plenty of common ground, but we do find ourselves at an anthropological crossroads. And I'm wondering if you see that um, uh, moving one in one direction or the other critically. Um, and obviously, because I don't want to be reduced to a beast or a machine anytime soon. And mm-hmm. I don't want my kids to be either. Uh, what are some practical ways that we can help uh, move the move the marker in in a favorable direction for the human person? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a, it's a tall order. Certainly, I, th- I think it I think it is a, a sort of anthropological crossroads. Um, the stakes couldn't be higher. Um, I think it always helps to have a more honest understanding of uh, of our history. Um, so that's kind of the spirit in which I hope thinking about the scientific revolution can can be a contribution to that to that effort. Um, I think there is there is uh, at least the possibility to to get people who who don't you know share many of the presuppositions that you know ground this idea of a, a human telos, a human nature, as something robust. And constitutive of who we are, and demanding not not just our attention, but our our respect, our reverence, um, and, and uh, sort of setting the terms in which we try to understand what is what is good for us, what we should do and not do. Um, to show people where they are, you know, where there are holes and gaps, and and just unexplained assumptions in their thinking. Um, uh, to get people to think about, you know, where does the idea of a human right come from mm-hmm. if humanity is such a malleable, historically contextual, uh, contingent uh, idea that we can mold it with, to our to our ends? Well, how about aspects of humanity that you don't want molded to other people's ends? Um, right. Uh, there's. I think one can point out the incoherence of, of treating human decision as just sort of operating in this sort of view from nowhere where the, the body becomes merely a, a technical object to be molded to, to the ends that we have. Um, uh, 
And so there are lots of different directions one can, you know, one can take. This is a, a big, uh, a big picture dispute. And so there are lots of fronts in this. Um, but those are a couple that come to mind. Uh, it seems to me that one of the, the visible sort of dramatic ironies of the upshots of the, of the scientific revolution is the, the way that even when people think they've moved beyond, say, the dualism of Descartes or something, they just end up with a, di- a displaced dualism where you have sort of the inner self as this mysterious being that has no connection to science whatsoever. Um, so the notion of identity is what I'm thinking of. Right. Um, and I think this is becoming apparent to people who would think of themselves as not very traditional, as not very Aristotelian, as not very Christian-friendly. Um, but they think of themselves as listening to science. And uh, some of them, if they're honest, have realized, wait, I don't know how to understand all this identity stuff. And how could there be this core sovereign self uh that seems to just float free of any reality of the body and just makes decisions and molds everything physical to its own ends. Um, that seems to be sort of reality denying. Uh, now it's one thing to see, to say, Hey, that seems kind of incoherent. It's another to say, here's why, and here's what the coherent understanding would be. But, um, but you look for starting points when you're making arguments in, in the public square, I think. Right. That's, that's one of them, I think. Right. And where would you, where would you maybe even as a, as a book or a resource that you would recommend, uh, to, to your average layman who just doesn't maybe even have an academic background, but wants to get into the heart of these questions. Can you recommend any good books? There is, hmm, names of the authors are escaping me. There's one called mind body dualism in contemporary philosophy or in contemporary ethics, maybe. Um, it's not Schwartz, is it? He, he wrote brain, mind and brain or something. Uh, there were two authors. Okay. Now it's eluding me. Okay. Um, uh, that's one on the, on the thing, the matter I was just talking about. Um, this is a little bit less directly related, I guess, but there, there's one called the way of the cell by a biologist named Harold Franklin. Um, so for somebody who's interested in, you know, what, where does biology stand now? What does it say about, um, the f- about there being a sort of nature or a form or a fundamental structure of the organism itself? Um, he doesn't quite go that far philosophically, but I think he shows you the way to, to think about the scientific results and perspectives and, and data that can... Um, it can lead you there. How about Aristotle himself? Do you, th- do you think yeah. the average guy could pick up Aristotle and and make sense of it? I mean, it, it's, it seems to me that Aristotle is a lot easier to read mm-hmm. than a lot of the moderns, if not all of them. Uh, yeah, I think that's true. I think certainly that's true of his ethics. Yes, I think the Nicomachean right. yeah, yeah. ethics is very accessible. Um, when I do, you know, the the when I've done the portions on friendship, for example, in not in my specialized program where it's students who want to read a lot of Aristotle, but in in uh, just the general ed program here where students are there because they have to be. And, <laughs> and, and the yeah. school is sort of bending over backwards to try to give them things that are relatable and so on. 
uh, and topical and, and sometimes in the shallowest way. The thing that is most relatable is Aristotle's discussion of friendship and the Nicomachean ethics, um, you know, 2,500 years old or so. Um, and so I think, I think Aristotle's ethics is a way to, to get in. It's a way that's, uh, accessible and not abstruse and it doesn't, uh, it doesn't depend on first jumping into sort of, uh, metaphysical arguments. Drawing a blank on other book recommendations. Sorry. It's all right. All right, lightning round. What's your favorite book of all time? Favorite book of all time? Uh, probably Augustine's Confessions, actually. Um, not terribly directly connected to, to our topic of discussion today, but. Um, you cradle Catholic or. Cradle Catholic? Catholic? Cradle Catholic, yes. And trying to get over my, my cradle complacency. Excellent. Same here. All right, very good. Dr. Joseph Peta, thank you very much. Thank you. It's my pleasure. And if you like that, share it, subscribe, give us five stars. We'll do more of it. We've got plenty of good stuff in the pipeline. Visit magnusinstitute.org for more. This has been a production of the Albertus Magnus Institute, Incorporated, all rights reserved.